1: I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with you at Jibosa. Carl is off. Today, we open with a fatigued consumer, surging interest rates, crippling inflation, leading to a muted holiday outlook for spending. Tech stocks set to take the brunt of it. Online sales on pace for their slowest growth in seven years, while the biggest retailers in the world, Amazon, Walmart, Target among them, Uh, Explore alternatives to clear excess inventory. Adobe is forecasting a mediocre picture for the end of the year. Later, we'll tell you how the iPhone 14 factors into all that. But D, Q4 consumer spending looking odd on a day when the NASDAQ is posting a new Mm 52-week low. Last year, the encouragement was everybody get out and buy your stuff early because supplies are uncertain. This year, it seems like retailers are trying to get people spending early because they're not sure if they're gonna spend later even though there's actually oversupply in some cases.
0: Yeah, and those are, that sort of estimate from Adobe shows that people actually are getting out and spending. Uh, you saw that number higher, but that doesn't say anything about the uncertainty, right, that we're going to face for the rest of the holiday season um, when consumers are still facing higher gas prices, higher home prices, higher rent, higher food prices. Um, so will those discounts lure them back in, John? This is certainly something we've been asking for a while now. How is that going to weigh on bottom lines, those inventories that they have from last year? Um, we just heard from Courtney Reagan. That was interesting. Interesting. Um, how is the consumer heading into this holiday season? Yes, still $1.4 trillion in savings, but that number is actually less than previous data implied. Um, so perhaps there's signs also going into the holiday season of consumer credit strain. As you said, the NASDAQ at a new 52-week low, the NASDAQ 100 also going back to September of 2020.
2: Yeah, this is that scenario that we've been talking about on Tech Check for a while now, since earlier in the summer, as these ex- experiences take center stage, people shifted away from buying stuff and toward you know going places, having experiences. You know there was that sort of pent up COVID demand to go places, but mm-hmm. once the summer's over and people look at that credit card bill, what happens? Now Adobe is saying that they expect a lot of discounting, a lot of sales uh, to to try to fuel spending uh, in the holiday season. But even as that's happening, we've got Microsoft. We've got Meta, Facebook, Mm -hmm. trying to launch premium devices because it's that premium consumer that's still spending. We'll see how much that premium consumer can bear.
0: <laughs> Which leads us back to Apple, John, right? It kind of feels like at the moment everything goes back to Apple. What it does in the upcoming season, especially its earnings as well, um, is going to have a huge effect, not just on the markets, but it's going to tell us a lot about the global economy. So where should you look for opportunity in this environment with tech continuing to get slammed? And where are the most risks coming from? Joining us now, tech investor Jeff Lewis, founder and partner at Bedrock Capital. Jeff, i got to say happy thanks Thanksgiving too as a fellow Canadian. Um, and thanks for being with us. Thank you,
3: now, Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Appreciate it. Your message here is essentially be careful. There's a bunch of tech companies that have gone public over the last few years in a much different interest rate environment. And you think a lot of them just can't hack it.
3: I mean, that's the reality. The reality is over the past several years, we had really a sort of nihilistic valuation environment. We have a nihilistic Fed that You know, feels asset prices don't matter. They felt asset prices didn't matter on the way up. That led to an insane tech bubble. All of these uh, tech companies got crazily overvalued. Uh, So many crap companies went out in 2020, 2021. I've had this line, nihilistic valuations I've been using for years. Now we're on the other side of that. And uh, most of these companies that went public over the past several years are never even going to be worth their initial offering price. And so there are a few narrow areas where investors can look, but in general, we are dealing with a nihilistic fad that's greening out of control, is my view. Uh,
0: but valuations have, have come down so much, Jeff, in a lot of cases for these IPOs that uh, they've gone below their IPO prices. Where do valuations settle out and start to look attractive? And isn't what you're describing essentially the tech playbook? I mean, you take copious amounts of VC money, get market share, and then eventually turn profitable. Are you saying that? Because the Fed is changing and interest rate environment is changing, they're never going to be able to get there?
3: Well, only a handful of these high margin software companies uh, actually uh, become profitable in the private markets. And then the hope is eventually they become profitable in the public markets. Now, what we've seen historically, Deidre, is in the public markets, the companies that become the most profitable over time all tend to be mega platforms. So if you think about names like Apple, which you're just speaking about, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta you know, Tencent, if we look to Asia, all of these are what I would term mega platforms. They are a platform that offers multiple products. These tend to be the most profitable companies. And so I think the place to be looking, frankly, is what is the next generation of mega platforms? What is the next generation of Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta? These are these are sort of the areas we can find opportunity. But in general, I do think a lot of the companies that went out in 2020, 2021 will, will never get above their IPO price. Uh, they, aren't, Jeff, they, they aren't mega platforms.
2: Jeff, uh, hunting for the mega platforms is one thing. But particularly when it comes to enterprise, traditionally, the mega platforms grow into mega platforms by buying the absolute best point solutions that are strategically important to build out that platform. Oracle did that uh, in a cycle. Google did it. Um, Amazon has certainly done it, so isn't there the potential for investors to pinpoint some of these smaller companies that, yeah, they might not be profitable, but if they have the right IP and if they have loyal customer bases, even if they don't, you know, go the distance on their own, they might get snapped up?
3: Absolutely. I think there's going to be a wave of consolidation of these, uh, of these point solution companies Uh, Certainly businesses like Datadog, which has the potential to be a true mega platform for observability in the cloud. I'd expect them to be acquisitive, given they're one of these few sort of, you know, mid-cap public tech companies that has the prospect of being a mega platform and actually is profitable. You know, Salesforce might get more acquisitive. Uh, You know, I think we'll see this across the board. Snowflake, still somewhat skeptical on that one, but they might get pretty acquisitive, given they have a lot of emerging competitors in the private markets that may displace them. But I would anticipate actually that a lot of the MA activity uh, will come from some of these public names buying private companies. And so I'm I'm not sure that the public is going to be, be be able to benefit that much. Like I, I'm not hyper long uh, SaaS point solutions in the public markets. I don't know if the public's going to re- be able to uh, capture the majority of the value from uh, from consolidation.
2: Hmm, interesting. Okay. So what do you do with fintech? You're not big on fintech lending companies, wondering how you feel about crypto, given all of the drama there. And then there's, you know, SMB fintech. There's other types of fintech that we don't tend to talk about as much, but that seem a bit more stable.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think anything that's fintech core infrastructure, I'm I'm very bullish on. You know, there's an argument, there's names in the private markets like Plaid, like Stripe that are that. Block has the potential to be sort of core fintech infrastructure, although the fact they named, they changed their name to Block uh, during the <laughs> crypto run-up from Square uh, makes me inherently skeptical of, of that one. I think maybe they, they had a few missteps in 2021, it's certainly around uh, buy now, pay later, which I'm very skeptical of sectorally at this point, uh, the crypto pivot. So don't love they changed their name to Block. Uh, But beyond that, yeah, I am sort of generally bullish fintech where you don't have a lot of lending exposure. And then I think a lot of the energy around fintech in practice was simply driven by a fallacy around zero interest rates. forever. And a lot of you know, I'm stealing a line from uh, Jim Chanos here, the famous short seller. But a lot of these fintech companies aren't actually tech companies at all. They were just arbs on low interest rates. I think a lot of them are going to go to zero, unfortunately.
0: Right. Uh, They're supposed to be cross-selling and growing into bigger platforms. But it's hard when there's so many of them. Uh, Jeff, you're also giving investors a warning here. You're saying be careful of a narrative mirage rally in Q4. It's kind of what we saw in the summer, right? A lot of these unprofitable tech names ran up. Once again, they have held up a little bit better. Um, So what do you think? They get sort of a boost in the coming quarters, perhaps, but that can't last?
3: I mean, look, if you wanna if you wanna RB Elon and Twitter, you can probably make some money doing that. It doesn't seem very sustainable in terms of a a thing to be doing. I think there, there's probably going to be broadly, depends what the Fed comes out with in the coming weeks. Increasingly looks like there's going to be another uh you know significant rate hike. So there may not be this crazy narrative mirage rally. But yeah, in general, I think one should be, you know, I, I don't think we're near the bottom here, and one should be very short. Uh, Yeah, a lot of these names. And then the question is, what are the mega platforms? And of those, I am most bullish Microsoft. I think that they have a uh, exposure to AI, which I think is going to be critical for the future. That's not priced in today through their investment in OpenAI on the way in which they're leveraging OpenAI's GPT-3 capabilities and things like the GitHub Copilot product. Uh, You know, I'm pretty bullish uh, I'm pretty bullish. Uh, some of these mid-cap companies like Datadog that are profitable, that have the potential to become a mega platform. And beyond that, I'd stay away. I think the meme stock era is basically over. Uh, Twitter's the last one that's left, maybe.
0: Mm. You know, it's not the first time we've heard um, enthusiasm for Datadog, too, as sort of that larger platform. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Jeff Lewis.
2: My pleasure. Now let's talk chips. The Socks down more than 4% right now, led to the downside by Lamb Research, Marvell, KLA, and Applied Materials. Uh, AMD shocking the market with its guidance cut last week. And then there's the new export restrictions on China, rattling names that are tied uh, to making chips. Let's bring in Collin Managing Director Matt Ramsey for a closer look. Matt, I want to start with, uh, with AMD because, I mean, lots of people thought the PC market was slowing down, there was inventory stacking up. Pat Gelsinger from Intel had said that a few months ago. But boy, a lot of people also surprised by how it hit AMD. I think it's now at levels where it was right before the pandemic hit. What should investors take away from that?
4: Well, um, Anyway, first of all, John, thank you for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it was it was a shock to the system on Thursday night. Um, the not the direction necessarily. As you point out, the PC market has been weakening. Um, we pulled in a ton of demand, um, work from home um, during COVID. And then you had some enterprise refresh on the back of that as people started to return to the office. And now a huge part of the market has upgraded PCs. And, and we're we're now on the backside of that. But I think the magnitude of, of how quickly this is happening is what really surprised folks. I think the AMD PC revenue was in their pre-announcement, down about 50 percent from the June quarter to the September quarter, and uh, uh, we knew things were weakening, but but that was uh, uh, quite a shock to the system, and I think that's going to be felt across the board. We've seen um, graphics chips correct in the GPU market. We've seen mid-tier Android smartphones have some pretty big challenges. So um, it, it, it's tough out there on on the on the back of this as the consumer spending uh, really tightens. On the flip side, these are quality franchises. I mean, AMD has. Uh, more than 50% growth in their server business, uh, a, a much more diversified portfolio with Xilinx now done as an acquisition. And the last sort of PC market correction, we were in single digit operating margins for AMD. And even with a huge correction in this PC market, they're, they're still printing solid growth on a year over year basis and are in the, the mid 20s at an operating margin. So it's a much different company than it was in the past. But yeah, that that was a tough set of news we got the other night.
2: Looking more broadly, At chip names, is there any new reason to doubt the broader narrative that we've been hearing from the likes of Marvell, Qualcomm, et cetera, that, you know, are gaining uh, share and innovating in the cloud uh, and and placing chips there in automotive, in systems as we switch over to uh, more uh, autonomy and toward electric vehicles, both Qualcomm uh, and Marvell, for example, have been building a lot into that Isn't that more of a three to five year and beyond perspective? And if we're to believe that that's right, are are, are these stocks trading at a significant discount to where they otherwise might be?
4: No, John, that's good questions. I'll say this, Um, 85, 90% of our inbound calls from institutional investors are in two areas, AI and data center growth and electric vehicle and autonomous driving growth. And Some of the companies that you you mentioned there, I do think they're having drivers of their business today, but this is a five to ten year secular growth driver in both of those markets. Um, Companies like NVIDIA, AMD, Marvell, Lattice Semiconductor, um, monolithic power systems, really strong in the cloud. Um, You look at the electric vehicle market, companies like OnSemi, WolfSpeed, Infineon, STMicro, Qualcomm you mentioned, Um, The secular bets here are, I mean, are there going to be more chips in all these devices five years from now than they are today? Absolutely. Um, The way that we've described sentiment right now is very different. However, you have some of this consumer spending is seizing up. Uh, You have worries about interest rates and what that might do to the automotive market. And and the way I would describe sentiment when we speak to investors is, yes, all of these companies are probably undervalued where they're trading today. But you step in first because I don't want to. And that's kind of where we are sentiment wise.
0: Speaking of near-term pressures, you've also got the export restrictions. Um, we've been yeah. here before, and China did not retaliate. Do you think that this time will be any different? How could they retaliate?
4: It, it's a it's a bit of a Pandora's box, Deidre. To be honest, I think that uh, the the United States and Western companies have invented most of the critical technologies all across the semiconductor industry, from um, software to libraries to um, uh, semicap tools and manufacturing IP. Uh, and the United States is continuing to gradually restrict those out of China. And um, I, I think as a citizen, it's the right thing to do, but it, it does create headwinds and, and uncertainty around some of the companies operating in these spaces. Uh, these are unique technologies that only a few companies and, and the best ones in the semiconductor market have globally. But they're, they're critical for all types of, of, of growth, both um, militarily, um, scientific discovery um, financials, consumer electronics. Um, all of these things are governed by semiconductors. And um, as the U.S. tightens those restrictions into China, the, 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 the friction between the two companies from an economic standpoint continues to go up.
2: All right. Uh, you know, it's important information to start the week. Matt Ramsey from Cohen, thank you, with the Nasdaq still down more than 1% at this mm-hmm. point, D.
0: And chips getting hit particularly hard in today's session. Meanwhile, a new front in the risk for tech platforms, Meta Twitter, now PayPal. And take a look at ARK's flagship fund, down another 3% today. That is a new low for 2022. It's down 63% since January, 77% since its all-time high back in 2021. Tech Check is back in two.
3: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play?
0: We mentioned e-commerce at the top of the show today. So how about a gut check on a name that has had a brittle 2022 along with the rest of growth tech? That would be Etsy. Uh, Goldman now says that it likes the name at these levels, initiates it at buy with a price target of 130. And that's about $20 above where it trades now. The stock has lost about half its value since the start of the year. um, And that upgrade not really helping today. Still down one and a half percent, John.
2: Yeah, the... uh now, content moderation back in the spotlight this weekend. One, you got PayPal, which got into trouble after expanding its list of prohibited activities to include promoting misinformation, saying it could result in a fine from PayPal of up to $2,500. After backlash, the company said it was an error to release that policy, but not before former President David Marcus and Elon Musk took some shots at their former company. And then Kanye West posting anti-Semitic content on Twitter and Instagram. That got him locked off both platforms. Let's take a closer look with platformer, founder, and CNBC contributor Casey Newton. Casey, PayPal says they're going to find people for misinformation, then says, oops, that was misinformation. That <laughs> wasn't what we intended to say. What? That's That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it?
6: Yeah, look, this is a really strange one, right? Usually by the time language like that shows up in the terms of service, it has been vetted by a lot of people. And so for PayPal to throw its hands up and say, we have no idea what happened is very strange. Maybe we'll learn a little bit more over the next day or two. But, you know, look, companies around the world are under more pressure from a lot of governments to do more moderation and to do it in places that you wouldn't expect. So I think people are right to be paying attention to this one.
2: Isn't the bottom line here that when we have an increase in concern over content moderation. That just means more people and, and lower margins for these companies because as much as they're spending on technology, on AI to fix this right now, it's not a software fix, it's a headcount fix.
6: Absolutely, and when you think about how many customers PayPal has, the question of how it would even attempt to monitor when and how and where they were spreading misinformation just seems like an enormous logistical problem. And as you know, it would be quite expensive. So uh, there are a lot of good reasons uh, for PayPal not to do this, even just going beyond the, the free speech principles.
0: And Casey, um, PayPal as a company, as a stock, we're looking at a one year chart. It's now nearly 70 percent. Um, there's so much going on with this name. Some on the street we're getting, you know, more interested because it looked almost like a value stock. And I wonder you've had the CFO leave. Um, we haven't heard from Dan Schulman in a while. What's going on with leadership at this company? Do you think that it's sort of due for, for a change here?
6: You know, I think it's a good question. Uh, PayPal is a, a venerable tech stock, right? It's been around for a while, and it might just not be showing the growth that investors are looking for. You know, as a longtime user of the app, I can't say it's changed much, added many new features, figured out new ways to get me to use it. So maybe the uh, leadership of that company needs to focus on the product side, uh, more on the terms of service side.
2: Okay, and Casey, you um... Elon Musk welcomes Kanye West back to Twitter and then Kanye West goes in lots of weird and and anti-Semitic directions. Are we to believe that in Elon Musk's Twitter world, Kanye would not have been suspended?
6: well certainly if you believe his previous statements that's the case right what elon has said is that for the most part he believes that speech that is not illegal should be allowed to remain on the platform and as abhorrent as the things that kanye posted were uh they're legal to to say in the united states um i would also note though that elon musk hasn't said anything about what kanye tweeted ever since this happened and so there's still some question about what elon would do if he indeed uh, take over the company
0: Right. But Casey, in this case, um, you could easily call this hate speech. And it feels like, you know, at least the recent comments that Elon Musk gave in that long FT interview, um, that maybe he'd be willing to take that off the platform. What can we take away from this?
6: Well, look, I I think you're right. And I think that if Elon becomes the owner of Twitter, he will gradually make the same decision that everyone else does in this space, which is that you do add moderation because it turns out that that's what your users want. You know, in all of these free speech uh, wars that we're having lately, uh, folks like Elon seem to forget that there is a market demand for content moderation, that people don't want to be in online spaces that are full of hate speech and abuse. And so they spend the money because it makes them money. And until we start having that conversation, I think we're just going to... Going to keep going in circles.
2: Yeah, it's one thing to say that you wanna be a public marketplace of ideas. It's another thing to say that you wanna be an actual marketplace, right? Because once, once you wanna be an actual marketplace, um, brands don't wanna be associated with prominent speech and controversy on a platform and users get tired of being trolled. Um, do, do Elon Musk's stated plans for making money with this platform line up with his also stated goals around free speech?
6: I don't think they do, right? He's told us that he wants to dramatically increase the number of subscriptions on the platform. He wants to to get that user base to be much larger than it is today. And how are you gonna do that if every time you open the app, you're seeing hate speech, racist content, the, the stuff that every other social network gets rid of for a reason? right? So there's going to be a moment where reality slaps Elon upside the head. And I really think that he's going to have to make some of the same decisions that all of his peers have made in this space, because ultimately, it's the only way to keep the lights on at, head- at headquarters.
2: You mean another moment, right? Not the Delaware Chancery Court <laughs> moment, but a different, a different moment.
6: A <laughs> yeah. lot of reality out there for him to uh, be introduced to.
2: Reality's got a lot of hands, a lot of open hands. Casey, thank you.
0: I was thinking the same as you, John. Which moment is that going to be? There's been so many. Meanwhile, watchers of Rivian. They are getting crushed today as they recall nearly every vehicle they've ever sold, though. That's only about 15,000. It's over an issue that could lead drivers to lose control steering. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
7: Life is a
6: highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one Mitt Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
8: of a detour.
5: I'm Frank Holland, here's your CNBC news update. Ford and GM shares are both down about six to 7% after UBS downgraded the automakers. Analyst Patrick Hummel sees weakening vehicle demand and pricing power after three years of tight supplies on new cars. Rivian stock also now down about 10% and just off its lows of the day. EV maker has recalled nearly all of its vehicles to fix a steering issue. Rivian says there have been no injuries, but Wedbush analyst Dan Ives caused the recall a black eye for the automaker. Rivian shares are now down about 70% this year. And Adobe Analytics is forecasting online holiday sales will rise just 2.5% this year, down from 8.6% in 2021. That is the slowest rate in at least seven years. Adobe cites a rebound in in-store shopping and higher inflation rates. That's the very latest. Deirdre, back over to you.
0: And we've got another Amazon Prime Day this week. Frank, we'll see how that goes. Thank you. Thank you. Let's turn back to the broader market now. The Nasdaq still underperforming, though, off-session lows. Uh, we are starting the week on another week note. Tudor Investments, Paul Tudor-Jones joined Squawk earlier this morning talking about the potential for a massive rally ahead.
9: When we get into that recession, there will be a point when the Fed stops hiking. There will be a point when um, it starts to either slow down or even at some point it'll reverse those cuts. And when that happens, you'll have just a you'll probably have a massive rally in a variety of beaten down inflation trades.
0: Here to discuss BNP Paribas Asset Management Chief Market Strategist Daniel Morris. Daniel, thanks for being with us Hi. today. So what do you do in this kind of environment, then, Uh, if you think that we might at least be close to lows, Do you pick up some of these names and wait for what PTD calls the massive rally eventually?
9: Yeah, you wish you could just fast forward to the rally bit and have to not have to go through what uh, might occur between now and then. Uh, Certainly that will happen. I mean, if you think of how markets react at the at the end of recessions, you know, those are the greatest opportunities. You know, March 2009. Uh, I fear we're probably not quite there yet. I mean, if you think about particularly for tech stocks and for growth stocks, uh, we've had one shoe drop, if you will, over the course of the year, which has been the increase in, in policy rates and real rates and discount rates. And that's clearly been very challenging for valuations uh, for growth stocks. Uh, but that second shoe, uh, which is the decline in, in growth uh earnings growth economic growth that really hasn't happened yet i mean if we look at the u.s economy what's the message from the non-farm payrolls data is that growth is still good and what we Mm -hmm. hear from companies is that they're struggling to meet the demand that's out there so we're still waiting for the impact of the interest rate hikes that the fed is putting Mm -hmm. through to slow down growth and we really have to go through that process first
0: yeah, important distinction between what's going on in the markets and that real economic data. Daniel, um, our first guest this hour, though, Jeff Lewis, he said that investors should be really cautious of some of that those unprofitable tech names, um, even if you see a little bounce that a lot of them are never going to recover. What do you think?
9: Well, you know, we, we had a rally a month or so ago. I think we're likely to see uh, potentially a rally going through the third quarter earnings season because, you know, even if. We're cautious about the outlook. I would anticipate we're going to have earning surprises. But you're right. If you're still going into an environment where growth is going to be slowing and companies that you know haven't been profitable up to this point, probably are not going to suddenly become profitable uh, if you're in a recession. And whether they make it through certainly is a good question to be asked.
2: But Daniel, uh, are you on the hunt for some of these growth names. And if you are in this environment, is it because of something that you think is just going to happen in the market over the next six months or because you think that these are valuable to hold over a longer term of years, whatever the the macro bears out heading into 23?
9: No, absolutely. And, you know, it always comes down to what your investment time horizon is. And really, if we look at what's happened to valuations for a lot of growth stocks, You know, we're always looking for those stories that we think have legs and something we can believe in over the long term. Uh, And if if this is an opportunity to get those uh, stocks, make those investments at an attractive price now, I mean, yes, it may go down more, but we do believe that ultimately they're going to recover. So we do see it as an opportunity. Uh, And I think the other thing to keep in mind, as we get closer to that recession, you know, on one hand, of course, we do worry about what does that mean for corporate profits? But it's at that time exactly that growth is at, you know, is most valued by investors and they're going to be turning even more to growth stocks at that time. And that's going to mitigate some of the downside you would expect on their earnings front, just because demand, if anything, is going to pick up for the sector.
0: Daniel, I see that you're overweight, China, and that's partly a call on tech. Explain that.
9: Well, you know, certainly China, you know, right now is having a lot of problems. Uh, you know, we're very aware of the restrictions around COVID you know, property market is dragging on demand. Uh, but the the benefit, if you will, of that is if you look at relative valuations of Chinese technology shares versus the rest of the world, or essentially U.S., uh, they're at a really steep discount. And we do believe in the medium-term story, you know, for the technology sector in China. So because of the very negative sentiment, which is really mm. quite exacerbated towards China right now, You know, even more than in the U.S., we do see a lot of opportunities there. So selectively investing, uh, you know, in particular names and in our multi asset portfolios have an allocation to China and particularly an index that has a bigger weight to the technology sector.
0: Right. But, Daniel, the reason we're here in terms of Chinese tech valuations is because Beijing did something that no one was really expecting and cracked down quite hard. And I mean, over the last few years, this narrative has really emerged that Chinese tech is uninvestable. Maybe you can trade it. Yes. But to hold on to it for any sort of long term time frame is really risky. Well, there's
9: kind of two ways of looking at that. You know, when you think about tech in, in general, You know, if you believe, as we do, in the kind of the medium term, and I would think most people do, in the medium term growth potential in the sector, in a sense you kind of don't have to be trying to pick the names because ultimately it will come good. Uh, And even if you have some companies that aren't going to make it through because they're not profitable and never become profitable, you're going to have enough of the winners that really do. So we, you know, without question, acknowledge uh, the regulatory hurdles that the sector has faced, but it's a belief that ultimately... I mean, essentially, that the government can't afford to continue on that path, it needs that support to the economy. It needs to become, you know, a higher value-added economy. I mean, if anything, the lesson you get from the problems in the property sector is that the the country, the economy, has to find new motors of growth. And it's hard to see motors that don't include the technology sector in some way.
2: But Daniel, as we look at that, both in China and at, um, you know, valuations and prospects, Uh, for companies in the U.S. and Europe. Does all of this in the market reflect the shifted reality that the U.S. and Europe have actually grown closer over the last 18 months and China in some ways from the broader uh, global marketplace has grown more isolated and might find it more difficult to gain scale outside of its sphere of influence with that technology?
9: Um, I guess I'm not so concerned about that. I mean, ideally, you'd like to have one big pie where everyone shares uh, across the pie as opposed to two smaller pies. Uh, But we still think, you know, even the smaller pies ultimately are quite big. I mean, let's not forget China is the second largest economy in the world. You know, it's unfortunate if that growth becomes more inward oriented, you know. But, you know, even if you take the U.S., the U.S. is a relatively closed economy. Uh, It can generate really a whole lot of growth that it needs just within its own economy. China is analogous in the scale and the size Mm -hmm. of the economy. So, yes, we think it would be better. Uh, But I think we all appreciate the kind of deglobalizational forces uh, that we're seeing. If that persists, that is not going to mitigate the opportunities that are there. It just maybe means they they come about in different ways and at different growth rates, but it's not going to stop it from happening.
0: Daniel, great to have your insights today. Daniel Morris. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Meanwhile, an exclusive with Biden's Cyber Cyber czar. That is next. Stay with us. Welcome
2: back. Let's get over to our Eamon Javers, who has an exclusive sit-down with the Biden administration's Cyber czar. Eamon.
1: Yeah, good morning, John. We're here in beautiful Sea Island, Georgia. We're at a conference here, a threat conference organized by the Cypher Brief, which is a media organization focused on cybersecurity and other intelligence threats. And you're right, I am joined by Chris Inglis. He is the White House's national cyber czar, uh, and he is also a former Air Force Brigadier General and former Deputy Director of the NSA. So Chris, you've seen this problem from every aspect. Thank you for being with us this morning. Yeah, man, it's good to be with you this morning. I, I want to start out, if we can, we saw a number of websites of airports across the country being defaced this morning. Some of those websites came down. What do you guys know about that? It seems like it's coming from a pro-Russian group, and is that any kind of threat to be concerned about
8: today? Oh I mean, first, uh, it's a developing situation, and so we know more about what the assertions, the allegations are of the hackers than we have seen underneath in terms of the actual effects. Um, I think the airlines and the airports who are dealing with this have shown so far that it's a defacement, it's a disruption. Of course, serious for the person who's trying to get some accurate information about what's happening at the airports, but there's no disruption to the critical services underneath that. I think that what we've seen so far is that uh, the airports have prepared themselves for situations like this. They're working their way through it. Um, The airplanes continue to run as they should with those services, no disruption.
1: One of the things that this sort of reminds us of is the fear that we all had at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A lot of people thought we were gonna see a big cyber campaign from the Russians aimed at the West, aimed at the United States. We didn't see that for a variety of strategic reasons, perhaps on Putin's part, but you wonder now that we see Putin in retreat, is that a likely scenario again? Are we gonna see a Russian uh, organized cyber threat against the United States now?
8: Yeah, so of course we knew that's in Putin's playbook. It's certain part of the Russian playbook, but we've not yet, yet seen them exercise that play. Um, I think that uh, we weren't so much afraid of that, but we were mindful of that, and we have prepared accordingly. Um, Both the private sector, the government has worked together to create the resilience and robustness and to be on the front balls of our feet to see that coming. So far, we've not.
1: One of the things you said in the conference this morning that I thought was so interesting was that it may be that cyber offense is a little bit harder or more difficult than we thought it was. And, And maybe the idea of Putin using that offensive capability isn't as easy for him as we might have thought. What have we learned so far in this Ukraine campaign?
8: Well, I think if you examine what we've seen in the physical domain, that it's harder for Putin to exercise a coordinated, synchronized set of attacks than he might have imagined. I think you can lift and shift that into cyberspace. It's harder to do that in cyberspace than it looks. That being said, we're still viable for, uh, liable for sucker punches. Yeah. We still have aspects of our critical infrastructure that are not well defended in terms of the investment that's been made over the last 40 years um, or our kind of mindfulness in terms of what's actually happening at the moment. So I think that we can have some confidence that it's harder than it looks, but we're not out of the woods. We still need to make sure that we're watching.
1: So what would you say is the greatest threat from the Russians in terms of a cyber campaign against the United States at this point? Is it airports? Is it the financial sector? I mean, what are you worried about?
8: I'm worried about our confidence. I think the greatest threat is whether if they take a small swipe against something that's not well defended, there are lots of choices. Whether we go to the darkest corner in the room and imagine that that then portends some actual disruption in the critical infrastructure underneath of that. We're considerably more resilient um, than than I think we might imagine. And we'll work our way through. We've done that before. We'll do that now. And, And so I think we have to be concerned as to whether we have the confidence and the agility to work our way forward. We should. We do.
1: So when we see defacing website attacks like this morning, that's nothing to be concerned about, nothing to freak out about.
8: I would say we should be concerned about it. We should address that. We should make sure that those services are restored, but we should make sure we discriminate between that and an actual threat to critical services.
1: We're just about a month away from the midterm elections. What do you see as the threat landscape there? Because we've seen, you know, 2016, 2020, we've seen foreign adversaries coming after the U.S. election system. Are we going to see that again this fall?
8: Yeah, we know that there are foreign adversaries that are attempting to affect our confidence in the election system, a free and fair, open election system. But just last week, um, kind of our Department of Homeland Security and the FBI issued a communication broadly to the American people saying there's no evidence to date and there's no evidence into the future um, that there's any viable threat against the actual conduct of an election. Surely people will challenge our confidence, but there's no viable threat to the election itself. No viable threat right now. That's right, no viable threat at the moment.
1: How about the Chinese? So much focus on the Russians and and what's happening in Vladimir Putin's mind, but we've got Xi Jinping about to be reinstated in power in in Beijing, uh, and we've got a very aggressive uh, rising power there. What's the cyber threat from the Chinese to the U.S. economy, do you think?
8: Well, the cyber threat from the Chinese has for a long period of time been simply the intellectual property theft, which kind of has gone on richly for probably now 12 years. Um, And that continues apace. But increasingly, that cyber threat can be manifested in um, the attempt to establish some threat to our confidence. Do we have confidence that a free and open society based upon a free and open internet will continue to prevail? I think it will. I think the market forces that we see play out where the United States and its like-minded nation still has the dominant economy in the world um, will continue to be true so long as we have confidence in that and we defend the processes underneath of it.
1: Well, that's probably a great place to leave it. Chris Inglis, thanks so much for joining us today on CNBC. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. John, I'll send it back over to you.
0: I'll take it, Eamon. Great stuff there. Thank you. And cybersecurity stocks, they have held up better than other tech this year. They are getting hit today, though, as you might have seen in those charts. Meanwhile, take a look at Netflix as well. It's getting a boost this morning as JP Morgan predicts at least $600 million of ad revenue growth in 2023. Stock's up one and a half percent. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's get another gut check here. And Frank Holland has that for us on a turbulent period for cloud stocks. Frank.
5: Hey, good morning, Deirdre. Uh, Cloud stocks are lower today on interest rate pressure with the 10-year yield moving about 20 basis points higher over the last week. In fact, all three major cloud ETFs just about 1% off their lows, as you can see. But we do know the transition to cloud, that's a real macro trend. Cloud spending globally seeing strong growth even as recession concerns grow. But important to note, it has declined from the levels that we saw earlier this year. Still to start Q4, many of these beaten up names are seeing major upgrades and price target raises, including City, upgrading Intuit and Workiva as two cloud stocks that can capitalize on the return to office and hybrid work megatrends. In our CFO survey, 95% of companies had some combination of in-office and remote work for employees this quarter. Cybersecurity spending continues to be a strong upward trend. Evercore putting optimistic price targets on CrowdStrike and Zscaler, citing the $100 billion total addressable market for cybersecurity and strong growth potential even in a recessionary environment. But of course, with the rising rates, they are also stocks seeing their stock price and their balance sheet impacted. Piper out with a list of stocks with concerning debt levels, focusing on companies with more debt than cash. A few of the stocks topping that list, DigitalOcean and Akami Technologies. Back over to you.
0: Frank, uh, you talked about some of the upgrades, but it feels like as we head into earnings season, um, more of Wall Street is focused on the downgrades. Have there been enough? Have there been enough right. in terms of earnings revisions? What's the sense here?
5: Well, I mean, certainly I think everybody's following the story of valuations being cut in half. You look at a stock like Salesforce, obviously with strong uh, cash generation, also strong revenues and a stable business. Still, their valuation has been cut just about in half over the past year. So the real question here is, what stocks are going to survive this potentially recessionary environment? I didn't name the hyperscalers here because we know they have a stable business. They provide the, cloud, the foundation for cloud-based stocks. But the question is, what other stocks on the stack are able to survive? And it's just a wait and see right now.
2: All right, Frank Holland, thank you. Now, does Apple's holiday growth hinge on the iPhone? Well, doesn't it always? That's next. Welcome back. How will Apple revenues hold up this holiday season as consumer electronics companies like Samsung, AMD and Microsoft warn of a hardware
7: slowdown? Steve Kovac has a look. Steve. Hey there, John. Yeah, this is Apple's most important quarter. Usually more than hundred billion dollars in revenue and about 90 million iPhones, give or take. But amid those warnings, like you just mentioned from Samsung and AMD, the question now is, how does the man for Apple products hold up as we see shares go down to 140 bucks? Now, Apple's taken some preemptive strikes against inflation and the oncoming recession. For example, they've increased prices of the iPhone across Europe, and last week App Store prices increased up. to 20% in Europe and parts of Asia to begin the quarter. But we're still hearing about some pockets of weakness throughout Apple's businesses. App analysts at both Morgan Stanley and Bank of America warning App Store sales are down year over year, according to third-party App Store data. Sales down 2% for the quarter, while China was particularly bad, down a whopping 10% on the year just for the month of September. Now, the iPad may be struggling to grow, too, B of A warning this morning after the pull-forward demand for the first two years of the pandemic. Take that all together, John, and analysts are still almost uniformly rating Apple a buy or outperform with price targets approaching 200 bucks. So what's expected from analysts, most say iPhone unit sales will be about flat year over year, but they're looking for strength in the demand for the pro line that can help offset that flat de- flat uh, sales for the units. And like all uh, year, we've been watching Apple to hit a new bottom to before confidence In the overall market has hit a new low, too. So as Apple goes, so goes the market, John.
2: It sounds, though, like Apple's raising prices, kind of succumbing to inflation in some market. Well, maybe not inflation so much as a strong dollar in markets outside the U.S., but demand might be slowing. It seems like there's a big reliance on a rich, loyal user base to uh, sustain revenue growth, even if unit growth doesn't show up.
7: Yeah, that's exactly it. And just hoping that more, you know, that higher end customers willing to spend a thousand bucks or more on an iPhone to keep that revenue growth. Remember, that's what Apple reports now. They don't report the unit sales, they report revenue sales. And on top of that, John, I just wanted to mention this IDC report that came out today, just backing up that PC demand is falling. But they did say Apple demand for their PCs, the Macs, the new Macs that came out this year, is holding up nicely. But again, they can't they literally can't make enough to really fully test the demand. D, I'll send it back to you.
0: All right, good point, uh, Steve. Thanks very much. Meanwhile, uh, markets clawing back some of their losses. The Dow is now off by just 25 points, and the NASDAQ has come back a little bit to down about 8 tenths of 1%. Uh, we'll be right back in a moment.
9: In a time when there's too much money, which is why we have inflation, and too much fiscal sp- spending, Something like crypto, specifically Bitcoin and Ethereum, where there's a finite amount of that, that will have value at some point, someday. I don't know when that will be, but it will have value.
0: That was Paul Tudor Jones earlier on Squawk Box still holding on to crypto, though not exactly concrete on its near term value. Few people are both Bitcoin and Ether at October lows this morning, though, as many have noted, John, um, really range bound this year when you've seen a whole lot more volatility um, in the major indexes. So you'd probably say the shakeout was just earlier.
2: Yeah, it concerns me in a way. I mean, it's kind of come to represent risk more than hedging against inflation or anything like that. And when that's holding up, You wonder what that means for the broader market, D. Major indices all still in the red. You've been
1: listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.
6: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
8: of a detour.